0: Welcome to Live at the Napa, you're here with JB and David Cunningham. Today JB we're up to episode number 28. Woohoo! <laughs> Woo-hoo. <laughs> so hey, a couple of interesting topics for today and they've probably be more diverse. The first one is what has been happening with interest rates, so we cover that topic a lot. So, but we'll joyfully briefly, briefly dwell on some pretty substantial things going on and what investors and borrowers can expect. But most excitingly, we're going to talk geopolitics. Woo-hoo. Now I won't spoil the thunder. We'll wait till we get to that, yeah. and uh, and we can sort of get into the detail. I know it's one of your favourite topics. So prepare for JB to be excited. <laughs> In the meantime, I'll get a bit excited about interest okay. rates. So I guess the big news is that whilst wholesale mortgage rates, interest rates are falling,
1: mortgage rates are still going up. Well, sort of, right? I mean, I guess Kiwi Bank and BNZ have moved recently catching up with the other banks. Yeah, it's taken a while, eh? Like yeah. ASB
0: moved its one year about 7.45, about two months ago. Yeah. So, so, so finally, finally,
1: all the banks have fallen into line. Which is, you know, which is, I guess, uh, oligopoly in action. One bank moves and then gradually the rest... Catch up, mm. so I wouldn't say that rates are going up because I think ASB set the high water mark a few months ago. But what you see is that all banks have now come mm. into line. Mm. So high watermarks sort of a, a, that implies ain't going higher. So
0: let's talk wholesale interest rates. So you know, for a, quite a while we've been. Reflecting that we believe economists in the financial markets were, we're wrong. Mis- mispricing uh, the four deal curve with the you know the expectation that interest rates would continue to rise, the OCR would go up again, and you know, we've firmly been of the view that the continued monetary policy tightening flow through household budgets, because household interest rates have still got another year of going up, um, just with the flow through of higher interest rates and coming off lower rates that there was plenty of work done and all those evidential factors like falling real volume in retail sales moderating wage pressures moderating inflation pressures all those sort of things were indicators that we were right and others were wrong and so what's happened in the last four weeks is we've had a 0.4 percent fall on the one-year swap rate which is one of the key determinants of retail mortgage rates and a 0.6 percent fall on the two-year rate so we've now got the market pricing for an OCR cut on, or around 27th of July next year, so eight months time, and three cuts by November next year. So in one year's time, the OCR will be 75 points lower according to the market.
1: What, has the market got that right? Or what? has the market overshot now? No, nah, no, nah, it hasn't overshot. And then and look, the market's just caught up with us. <laughs> but um, but look, it's interesting, is it? Because for a while there, you know, I mean, we've been firm of the view for a long time. I think we got it right, but, you know, let's be fair, rates peaked a bit higher than we thought, like, I think back maybe a year ago, and, and you know we were calling out that we thought the RBNZ had tightened too much, that five and a half was going to be hard, and the Reserve Bank went there, and I, I thought rates would probably peak around five, five and a quarter. It got to five and a half, um, and then ever since then we've been saying watch the slowdown, you know, and. And the market just wasn't pricing it at all, mm. and, and you start to second guess yourself and it's like, oh shit, what if it goes a bit further? Mm. Um, we're finally starting to get vindicated fundamentally because there's um, strong evidence now that the market's slowing down quickly, right?
0: Yeah. Equally, around the world, uh, pretty well every market bar Australia has interest rates falling by roundabout. 0.75% over the next year as well. So has New Zealand just benefited from that global sentiment, or are they two just different things that reached the same conclusion at the same point in time? What do you think well, has been going on? Well, I think it's a bit of both, right? right? But what it is,
1: is how interest rates behave at the top of a cycle. And, mm. and, and you know we've always said that reserve banks generally will jawbone the market. Mm. They'll talk a tough game mm. until the data says otherwise. Mm. And that's what you've seen. You know, you've seen reserve banks all around the world in Australia still doing that uh, and probably needs to, not trying to get the market easing. Yeah.
0: So the reserve bank's going to continue to hold a firm line, show a forecast. I think their next release is, is it in a week or so, the next yeah. OCR review. So they're going to show a forecast that says the OCR is 5.5% for another 18 months.
1: Yep. <laughs> they won't show an easing yet. No, I don't think. Because, because if they show that. an easing, then interest rates will fall F- further. Fall further.
0: So yep. Mortgage rates will start to fall. All that tightening pressure that's been on households will start to unwind a little bit. Hey, so with wholesale rates having fallen, you know, let's say half a percent, why haven't housing, home loan, mortgage rates started to fall? Well,
1: and that's yeah. Is uh, it just a timing thing? or...? Well, I think there's a couple of things in there, isn't there? I mean, one is that you know, banks are fundamentally looking at their levels of profitability, and that's a big influence in terms of how they drive things, and we've, we've talked infinitum about that. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I, I mean, at the end of the day, we need to see that one-year term deposit rate move.
0: Right, yeah. So banks fund partly from transaction accounts, partly from savings accounts, partly from term deposits, especially the special term on term deposits, six months, 12 months typically and then some wholesale market funding too, um, often typically long-term from offshore, you know, five-year or domestic five-year bonds and things like that. So, transaction account price hasn't moved, it's still zero. The call accounts haven't moved for a few months, so it's just the competition and TD rate. So I was looking at some data earlier and it sort of showed that uh, the six and 12 month TD rates have risen about 60, 80 basis points in the last few months and actually mortgage rates have risen by a similar amount so yeah. the margin actually hasn't necessarily changed dramatically when you go turn deposit versus mortgage rates.
1: Yeah, 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 that's, that's true. Look, it's unusual because I think at the top of an interest rate cycle, so normally you'd see big fat margins on residential mortgages when rates are low because mm. the margin between lending and deposits is pretty tight, right? Um, you, you're gonna have term deposits at negative margins. And so they need to make a lot more margin on their home loans. And so the what's unusual is at the top of an interest rate cycle, certainly the last cycles that I've been in, in the bank, mm. um, mortgage margins are normally very skinny. Mm, like know? 1%. So we've got 1.8% on mortgages at the moment. But equally, TDs are minus half a percent. This is what I think has been going on, Dave, is that what's happened is that the banks have been looking to housing to control their net interest income margins and, and grow those in an environment where there's just no growth, right? Because yeah. they haven't got volume growth. But for them to do that, they have to have a story right. that, that kind of yeah. fits the narrative. And the story is moving at least one of the term deposit rates right. up. And I think we've seen that with that 12 months. So term it's sort of like rate. you're saying
0: all home loan borrowers they earn the wider margin on as a bank, but only a small proportion or less than probably half of all savings rates are getting a higher rate because transaction yep. accounts, Zero. It's forty billion billion, yeah. zero. Zero. Savings accounts, $75 billion, 3%. Yep. TDs have gone from, you know, 5 to 6.15 for one year. So 6.15 for one year when the wholesale rate is 5.55. How sustainable is that for a term
1: investment? Is that
0: a damn fine place to invest for a year right now?
1: Well, if I was doing a term deposit, I'd certainly be fixing longer term at the moment because these right. rates aren't going to hold.
0: Right, so you'd sort of be potentially looking at longer term...
1: Well, I would have probably, if I, you know, in the last few months. The the long term, I think, you're going to struggle to get banks competing. But, you know, that one-year rate still looks really good. If you were a term deposit customer, you know, 6.15 is a fantastic rate today. Yeah, look, so I think for the banks, competition is going to see that 12-month term deposit. I mean, it sounds weird. Competition is going to see that term deposit rate reduce. But look, you're not gonna get competition in those home loan rates until you see that term deposit rate drop. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, so the rate to watch is the one-year term deposit rate in particular. It could well be down at 575 rather than 615 on average. It should be. In a few weeks, or even a lot. Let's watch that, and if that happens, we'll see mortgage rates go, or potentially both happen together. Yeah. Why though, uh so you reckon banks are competing for those two deposit rates not because they're desperate to pay over the odds to get more funding because there aren't really funding pressures because they're not look, taps not on flowing out the door on lending. it's an optics thing, that's your view, is it yeah, yeah, wow. very much so wow.
1: well, certainly with the big banks, with the smaller banks, you know there's an argument that they need those deposits yeah, to yeah, grow, but yeah, with the big yeah. banks, um, they're pretty flush with cash at the moment, right yeah, I mean yeah. yeah.
0: Hey, um, incidentally, just talking about those longer term TD rates, it's probably not a bad deal without this being financial advice, but you can get 6% from most of the big banks for two years, 5.5 for three years, even 5.8 for three years, and and 5.5 for five years. So, you know, if you want to lock in a longer term rate, that's an option. Buying government stock, if you're a more sophisticated end of the market, that's another option. So you know, arguably the best time to invest and the worst time to borrow at fixed rates right now. Yeah, yeah, Cool, okay, that's interesting. Um, Geopolitics,
1: so why the heck
0: have we got that on our agenda to talk about today? Well, you know,
1: I love talking about it and I I love putting it into the conversation whenever I can, but we were lucky enough at Squirrel to have Haggai Segal come and talk to a bunch of our investor clients on Monday night. Mm-hmm. Haggai is a global geopolitical expert. Uh, lectures in London, he's British, and he's probably one of the world's leading experts on the Middle East. Mm.
0: And I attended that, and Insight, he was speaking at a conference in Australia with 1,200 people. No doubt they've flown him out to Australia and paid for that. I think we got the visit on the cheap to talk to us but you know he was talking to 1200 senior banking executives uh, in australia so you know highly regarded sought out by many of the news
1: media to talk on geopolitical stuff I think he's talking to our government today. Okay, to so, the UK. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no. So he's probably one of the world's leading experts on the Middle East. But he's a lecturer and he looks at uh, everything. So, so we and had he's a, sort of a
0: mate of yours, right? That's how you got him along. Well, sort of. well,
1: to be honest, I saw him speak about six or seven years ago, and I'd rate it as one of the best conversations I'd ever had. Mm. And I, ever since then, whenever I get the opportunity. Mm. To grab, how hey, I do, right? Mm, mm, mm. Um, so, Ray's
0: right, so even ahead of chatting with me every week on. <laughs> <number>. <laughs> well, <laughs> Hey,
1: look, so it's just sometimes you get these opportunities to get a global perspective mm. from people that really know what they're talking about. Mm. Now, I think the benefit on Monday night is that you know a lot of the stuff that he talks about, you'll find it in the media and places, but but often these conversations don't play out in, in the mainstream media because it's risky. You know, it's risky when you're talking about some of this sort of stuff that it's misreported, mm. that it's misinterpreted, mm. and, uh, and you know, in the topics that we were talking about on Monday night, were really fascinating. So, you know, one of the questions was, "How close are we to World War III? I mean, it, it's a conversation we didn't. Came he with say, "Don't talk about <laughs> that." <laughs> no, no, he, he said, "Don't take a photo <laughs> because it'd be misinterpreted." And I think the answer to it was, "We're not," mm. right? Um, but let's let's break that down and understand why. And I think uh, Haggai's you know, piece to that mm-hmm. was that the institutions that were put in place sort of post-World War I, World War II, yeah. are working. Yeah,
0: his comment was, my memory was, that if this were 1930-something, we would, we would better, be. We'd but because of all those institutions being put in place and diplomacy, it ain't nowhere near at all. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's working properly and and the Ukraine's probably a really good example of it where with Putin, where his big mistake was in going into Ukraine is he obviously underestimated how Mm. people would respond to it, but um, it actually really solidified Mm. you think about the way that Mm. America and wider Europe have responded Responded to it. it, It's sort of
0: strengthening everything. Finland's now part of NATO. NATO, NATO, NATO And the border with Russia, Finland's border with Russia is like 3,000 kilometres is something extraordinary isn't
1: it no the point was that russia's border now with europe with, with nato yeah, yeah NATO, NATO was now is, three thousand, yeah yeah uh, kilometers so so, so in and, some ways
0: you'd say the outcome from the ukraine conflict is a more stable world ironically I,
1: ironically and so we had a bit of a chat about that um, the risk the risk of the ukraine is that um is america right and we were talking well, about donald trump that, isn't it D- donald trump yeah and and the fact that trump is showing that there's certainly a material probability that he could be the next leader in the US, right? We're going into election next year. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw something recently where they did him head-to-head against Biden and others, and Trump was winning, right, Mm -hmm. on a head-to-head. Well, Haggai said
0: that if Trump isn't convicted for electoral fraud, because if he is, there is no way he will be, people will back him. But if he He isn't, he said a 55% probability in his rating of Trump being the president. So there you go, that's like mind boggling, uh, isn't it? It would yeah. be surprising to many people.
1: And then, so one of the big things for the Republicans and for Trump in particular is um, pulling um, out of Ukraine because it's taking too much American So, resources. is that what's
0: going on in Ukraine now? Russia's sitting there, you know, they've all got drones up so they can see every, you know, so the battle lines, the front lines aren't moving back or forward. Putin's just biding his time to see if the US can deal with Trump, in which case Ukraine support goes. That's when all hell breaks but loose. Well, and it well, they, they,
1: but there's two sides to it, right? So Putin's looking at the US, looking at what's happening with the election over there, mm. and biding his time. Mm. But then we've got the conflict in the Middle East, right? Mm. And the conflict in the Middle East, you know, you could look at it and you could say Israel, Hamas, mm. and that's clearly what's happening. But the deeper rooted issue, and I've known about this for years is actually Saudi Iran, Iran yeah or Sunni Shia yeah it goes way back in history it's not a modern thing and it's been playing out for you know for centuries mm. fundamentally the conflict in the Middle East is factionalization of, of Muslims into Shia and Sunni mm. and and so that is Iran Shia and Sunni which is uh, Saudi Arabia
0: and he described Saudi's Role as effectively the the reason Hamas did the attack that provoked the war. I guess you called it underway now.
1: So what's well, interesting because in history, Israel has been forming relationships in the Middle East, right? So um, Israel actually historically had a very strong relationship with Iran, um, mm-hmm. but then the revolution occurred, mm-hmm. and part of that was the Ayatollah, you know, then said Israel is you know the enemy and they'll bury it and i think Mm. they accused the u.s of being satan and Mm. the whole thing fell apart right but what people don't realize is before the revolution there was actually a very strong relationship forming between israel and iran now that's obviously completely destroyed the thing that's happening at the moment is that saudi and israel have been getting closer together And the thing behind that is Saudi is going down the route
0: trying to do what the Emirates, UAE have done, you know, the Dubai's and Qatar's and and so on, in terms of removing the reliance on oil. So if you think about Dubai, is Dubai got any dependency on oil? I, I don't think so, right? They've created a business, tourism, sort of global hub and, you know, airlines will fly through that part of the world and so on. And so Saudi, which is totally dependent on oil until recently, is trying to do the same. And that's why Saudi's buying up Golf and, you know, the F1's there. And my daughter actually lives in Saudi, in Jeddah. She's been there for about four or five years now. And that relaxation of the strict cultural sort of elements um, has been significant. Like a woman couldn't drive in Saudi when Emma arrived out there. Yeah. Women can now, as Emma said, you never would because there are these mad young males, there's no drugs, no alcohol, so they take it out in their motor vehicles. You said even her husband and their V8 whatever's scared. But anyway, you know, a woman can go to a football match and watch football and so on. You know, the malls are full of Western shops. Yes, they've got their abayas on, which is neck to ankle sort of covering, but not the full face covering or anything. But as you said, you know, you go into the shops and the malls, there they're just like a Western shop, you know, skinny knickers, all that sort of stuff. They're just all hidden underneath sort of something. But it's very Western and it's become more so in those five years. So, so Saudi is going, we can't continue to rely on oil. Obviously, why? It run, a, it runs out. And B, the world's reducing its dependency on oil massively so they saw israel as a place that had the technology to support a lot of what they wanted to achieve in developing as a business and technology sort of hub as part of their sort of future have i I sort of characterized that right i think that that, that as
1: well but also that israel is the enemy of iran
0: okay so it's just because they're their enemy they're our friend
1: yeah your enemy is our friend
0: so 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 what what, why did hamas attack that it did Uh, what what was on and train
1: So Iran is trying to sort of destabilise Israel's relationship with other Arab states. Yeah, And so, uh, and Hamas is uh, aligned with Iran, and Mm -hmm. when Hamas obviously went over the border and, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously did what it did, for the first couple of days, Iran was sort of quite visible, rah-rah, um, but then realised that, you know, that's their 9-11 moment and mm. they dialled right back, right, and didn't take any responsibility and have very much sat on the sidelines. Mm. Interesting that with Hezbollah in the north, you know, a um, big question mark about whether a bigger war would break out. Mm. And what's the role
0: of oil all through this? That was something that we talked about on The
1: I was talking about there is sort of this um there's a very i've seen this before and it was probably Haggai in a previous presentation just talking about um the relationship between oil price and when uh, iran is funding uh, terrorism <laughs> so uh, when iran oil price East. is high
0: surplus cash do that when not not and, and yeah. i guess things like blockades or sanctions and all that sort of thing have an impact too right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah
1: totally so i think if you look at you know, certainly, the West, the US, the US has been very aware for a long time of the relationship between oil price and, and, and terrorism generally. Wow. When the oil price is high, um, much higher risk of getting um, state-sponsored terrorism occurring, wow. and when the oil price is low, it just doesn't happen, right? Mm. And look, I think there's a growing awareness, even with countries like Saudi, which is why they want to move away from oil, mm. because if you're in conflict with, you know, one of your big neighbors. Mm and that neighbor's very much reliant on oil prices to to maintain that conflict, then taking your economy away from that dependency is, mm. a, is a very good way of winning the economic war.
0: Mm. Mm. In, Interestingly, one
1: war. thing I said was that when Gaza was occupied
0: fully by Israel, then they'd bring in Saudi who would build, you know, multi-story buildings and, and create quite a potentially affluent sort of
1: place. Well, well, not Saudi, but obviously there's a lot going on in the Middle East at the moment, and we're so far removed from it but I think the sense was that look when you end up in a situation that is as bad as we're in at the moment the thing that will come out of it the positive that will come out of it is an acceptance that you don't want to go back there again Mm. right which is no one wants to go back to this Mm. on either side Mm. so you're going to find people constructively post- the situation that they're in at the moment, you're gonna see people working proactively to make sure this doesn't mm. happen again.
0: So what about China, US, Taiwan, all those sort
1: of things? So what's the dynamic that guy described there? I guess his view of the world was that China's got too much to lose to mm. go aggressively. I mean, there's a lot of statesmanship going on, mm. but it's, it's very much tied into the global economy. Mm. I mean, it's the biggest
0: investor in US government bonds by yeah. a big, big margins, you know, like it owns a massive proportion. So a weak US issue isn't really in there. And, and a anyway, lot of what
1: China's built is, has been built around logistics and globalization. So, mm. you know, it's so heavily invested mm. in the world the way that it is that mm. for it to break that um, would be destroying itself. Mm. And I guess the argument is, you know, if the West had responded very weakly to Ukraine, and Putin had just marched in there and kind of got away with it, that would have been an open door for Xi to then go and do whatever he wanted to do, you know, Taiwan Taiwan possibly, or you know, with the investment that they're making into Pakistan Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and in that part of the world, you know, would have given him confidence to challenge the status quo Mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. more than he will.
0: Yeah, so the sort of strong message was that what used to be US-Russia is now the two superpowers of US-China. Very much so. And the implication he painted for New Zealand that one day we are going to be asked to choose. Yeah. Did you, did you agree with that? Because we're sort of navigating you know, two really important markets from an export perspective and military perspective from a US you know, angle and so on. Do you think that is right? Do you agree with Haggai that we are going to be forced to choose? Because we're sort of tiptoeing down the middle at the moment. You know, Australia, for example, you know, had its wine imports banned and and other stuff last year, and it's all sort of thought of it and so on. But do we have to choose? Because it's got pretty significant economic implications, you know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. And I I think having to choose kind of feels like a bad outcome. Mm. Mm. In some ways, we will have to choose because there's just going to be some things where you can't. Hide somewhere in the well. Middle. we'll choose sort
0: of one direction and one <laughs> for some things and the other for the other because you know our biggest export market China, right yeah yeah um, absolutely but incredibly dependent on the us and you know friendly relations and all that so it well, doesn't feel to me like we're going to be facing yeah chance, but, it, but there are going to be you know like we've been really careful over the last two years with what foreign ministers and so on say about say human rights things and abuses or whatever in, in some countries and that and so we have you know trod that line maybe we need a bright new foreign minister like Winston Peters or something to continue to navigate that so
1: actually, he'd be the perfect person to represent New Zealand for the next 20 years if we've got to make a choice because he'll get away with making both choices and neither choice at the same time He'd be like a gen- genius in the role right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 but hey look if we were to sort of summarize that and I, I think people know this that A lot of what's happening now is the positioning of China and US, right? Mm. That is Mm. the big undercurrent Mm. that is there. Mm. There's lots of little things playing out around the world at the moment. There's a lot of noise and some very bad things happening. I mean, what's happening in Israel uh, and Gaza at the moment is absolutely horrific. The good news is amongst all of this, including things like North Korea. I mean, if you think about it at the moment, mm. potential for Trump in America, mm. Frexit in Europe, you know. And Frexit? What's that?
0: Brexit was Britain. Mm. What's Frexit?
1: Uh, that France, France exits the EU. Is that seriously an option? Uh, well, potential? Well, d- well, when you're getting much stronger sort of nationalist type yeah, governments that's, that's coming in. That's
0: sort of called in. right wing, is it? That, that sort of yeah, yeah, yeah your right wing nationalist. See, right, right and left wing sort of almost meet in the circle. They sort of do. But
1: there is the potential for, um, you know, risk inside the EU, right? Mm. And I think Le Pen's the one that's mm. being talked about in France at the moment. Mm in terms of that now i mean britain leaving the eu manageable france leaving the eu would be catastrophic for yeah. europe mm, mm, one mm. would think because fundamentally yeah. that is a german mm. french mm. one reflection i had listening to guy was that the
0: geopolitical things he described were very long-term country positionings and yet we change governments every three or four or six years, five years or whatever it is. And, and, you know, I talked to him afterwards about it and his reflection was that, you know, bureaucrats is an ugly sounding word, but, you know, the officials sort of whose job it is through time to represent the country's interests and the diplomats and all that actually chart the course for a country. The politicians come and go, they might say something before they're elected, but when they're elected, they're brought into the real world. And so the good news is, despite this constant change politically underlying it, there is a far greater degree of stability of policy and global positioning than we might have thought on the face of it. That was sort of one of my takeaways. Yeah. Um, so, because, you know, let's think about this conversation we're having. I don't, I don't know if to feel great or good or bad about it. I mean, what, it's, I suppose we understand the world a bit better.
1: Hey, look, I mean, it's beyond our control. Mm, mm. So it's not something that you should stress or worry about because mm. you have absolutely no control over it. But... When you have a bit more context, I think it just makes it a bit easier to mm. kind of join the dots and understand mm. how things are yeah, sort of fitting yeah. together. I
0: guess I sort of I feel actually the world is more balanced than perhaps on the face of it. You know, if you watch the news and the latest sort of news stories, and it's always bad news, actually the world is more balanced than some of that stuff would suggest.
1: Yeah, yeah, that would be my outtake. Yeah, yeah. doesn't feel that great at the moment. Yeah. But um, the systems are working yeah. and the world is pretty stable. Yeah. Not, cool. not, well,
0: <laughs> good news. And so let's wrap it up. With, uh, I'll wrap it up. Uh, so what does that all mean for house prices and interest rates?
1: They will go up and they will go down. Yeah, look, I think all we're seeing back to New Zealand is pretty much what we've been talking about for the last two or three months. Interest rates very much at peak. Markets now anticipating rates falling middle of next year. We're not going to see anything from the RBNZ in the short term. I reckon the February statement will be the first time that we might sort of get a a real sense for timing around the OCR dropping, Mm. and you'll see the markets respond pretty quickly at that point. Mm. So I kind of feel middle of next year is a good call in terms of starting to see a meaningful drop in mortgage rates. House prices, we've talked a lot about that, don't see anything out there at the moment that's going to suggest otherwise, a little bit of a kick up in house prices, which is more of a recovery than anything. Mm. Interestingly in The Economist Today article on why house prices are going up, and Again, very much what we've talked about, but it's not just happening here in New Zealand. Hmm. You know, again, it's, this is a similar story that's emerging in a lot of economies. Okay,
0: that sounds like a conversation for next week. So it's bye from David and bye from JB. Cheers. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have any questions or things you'd like us to talk about in the future, get in touch with us at david at squirrel.co.nz or john at squirrel.co.nz. And please do share this uh, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not financial advice or a recommendation of any financial product. Any commentary provided are personal views and are not necessarily representative of the opinions of Squirrel. As always, we recommend seeking professional investment or mortgage advice before taking any action.